Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this week's episode of Crazy Money. I come to you live, well, recorded live, from the Sheraton Tribeca on Canal Street in New York City. Not trying to boast. I paid with points. It's not sexy, but it's a very adequate hotel, a great location, like it a lot. I'm speaking tonight at a Poets and Quants, it's the EMBA website, a Poets and Quants event at NYU Stern School of Business. Last night I performed at the Westside Comedy Club. And I had this interview that you're about to hear. I conducted this interview with A.J. Jacobs. He's a really interesting dude. He is an author, a four-times New York Times bestselling author. He's editor-at-large of Esquire magazine. You may have heard him on NPR where he frequently appears. He's written a bunch of books, really interesting deep-dive books. He spent a year living biblically. He had to follow all the laws of the Bible from the uh, Ten Commandments to some crazy ones that he mentions in here. He wrote a book called The Know-It-All, One Man's Humble Quest to Become the Smartest Person in the World, where he documents him reading all of Encyclopedia Britannica. Not the World Book, because the World Book is for dummies. The Britannica is the smart persons. And he's done a whole bunch of other stuff. The book that we're talking about specifically is his new book called Thanks a Thousand, which I've read and is a really interesting trip into the world of gratitude. He goes around and thanks everyone who is involved with his morning cup of coffee, and I'll let him tell more about that. Anyway, the reason why I think it's important and why it's related to money is because without gratitude, we are human want machines. We are machines that are designed to want more without really knowing what we want from it. And exploring what we want from money is what this is all about. Gratitude, being conscious about the goodness of what we have, Gratitude is important because you can be a billionaire, but if you don't have gratitude, you won't feel like you have enough. And that's why I wanted to talk to AJ about his book. Enjoy it. One of the most embarrassing was my first book. Mm. I sent it to an agent. He sent it out to some publishers. And one of the publishers said that they were interested, but they wanted to see a photo of me. And I was (laughs) like, why do you want to see a photo? My agent said, well, they just want to make sure you don't have two heads Mm -hmm. so you can go on a talk show. So I went to Walmart. I didn't have a photo. This is before cell phone photos. And I took a photo and sent it to him. Two days later, my agent calls me. He's like, well, they're going to (laughs) pass. And I was like, I'm not good looking enough to be an author. author? (laughs) My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. This is not a podcast about how to make a million bucks, how to beat the stock market, or how to save money by switching cable providers. It's about how we think about and live with money as a society and as individuals. It's about the choices we make that lead us toward or away from happiness. Welcome to Crazy Money. AJ, for those of our listeners who don't know about you, I've read your bio, but I'm so interested in why you do what you do and how you do what you do. Your books might be described as experiential memoir. Sure. Something like that. And for previous books, you chronicled your experience reading the entire Encyclopedia Britannica. For another, you spent a year living by the rules of the Bible. And for yet another, you spent a year living radically honestly. Oh, yes. That was actually only a couple of months, but that was enough. That was definitely enough. Yeah, there's a psychologist in Virginia who believes that we should never lie. But he goes further. He says, whatever's on your brain should come out of your mouth. Mm. No filter. So That has not helped my career. 
And now it's a very dangerous, a very dangerous position. I mean, he says, if you are fantasizing about your wife's sister, tell your wife and tell her sister. So it's, uh, you know, I, I, it can result in I don't know about job that. loss, divorce. Yeah. I will say there are some elements that are liberating in a good way. Mm-hmm. One that I've adopted is I'm much more radically honest about my own mistakes and flaws. Mm-hmm. So when I screw up, it just feels so much better to say, I messed up, you know, and accept the consequences instead of like, expending all the energy to kind of try to come up with excuses that's very tiring i can imagine you don't have to remember which lies you told that's a huge one i mean those two months were so liberating like not having to remember who i told what to Mm. and uh you know if you didn't want to go out to lunch with someone you'd say you know what i am kind of busy i don't uh no thanks and that was it you never had to say oh i'm sick and then remember that well, you've been on a lot of different journeys, and, and I'd love to explore many of them with you. But specifically, I want to dive into your most recent journey, which relates to gratitude. And f- before we jump into it, the reason why gratitude matters to me and to the mission of this podcast is because I believe, and I believe you'll we'll talk about some research that backs this up, that a person's feeling of well-being around money and around wealth has more to do with how grateful they are for what they have than for the absolute amount of money that they have. I would agree. I mean, I think that the relationship between happiness and money is complicated, and I'm not up on all of you. are probably more up on I mean, As far as I understand, it does have some effect up to a certain level. But then... You can have, you, you know, I'm sure there are many unhappy billionaires because it's not a sufficient, you can be a miserable billionaire and I'm sure there are many out there. Which might make some people feel better if they really knew that those billionaires were miserable. I think some people would like to know that some billionaires were miserable. Yeah, the dark part of me actually really does get <laughs> some shot in Freud out of that. But I don't know, that's probably not a healthy emotion. So your new book is called Thanks a Thousand. Right. Tell me about what it is and why you went on this journey. Well, I went on it because I had read all of this, these studies on how crucial gratitude is to your happiness. And I am not by nature grateful. You know, I talk in the book about we all have our two sides, the Larry David side and the Mr. Rogers side. And I had a very strong Larry David side. And, and I think that's more natural. You know, you hear a hundred compliments and a single insult. And what do you remember? Of course. Right. Yes. So we are born as humans with a negative bias, which I think helped us in Paleolithic times to find the lion. But it's not so good now. A negative bias meaning when you hear something rustling in the bushes, you assume it's a lion. Exactly. Even though most likely it's the wind. Mm-hmm. But that mistake is a bad mistake. To Your make. genes end that afternoon if you, if you <laughs> give the lion the benefit of the doubt. Exactly. Uh, so uh, I knew about gratitude's importance. And I, would, I try to do these gratitude rituals. For instance, I would say before a meal, I'd say this modified prayer of thanksgiving mm-hmm. and i uh, i say modified because i'm not religious so instead of thanking god i would say oh i'd like to thank the people the farmer who grew this tomato and the the cashier who sold me the tomato at the grocery store and my son i would say this out loud and my son who was 10 at the time 
said, you know, Dad, that's fine, but it's also kind of lame because those people are not here. They, you're not helping them. Mm-hmm. If you cared, you would go and thank them in person. And I was like, you know, sort of a light bulb. I was like, that's a pretty good idea for a book. He threw it down. He threw it down. And I was like, thank you for earning your supper. Uh, I'm going to do that. So the bad news is now he's going to be an editor. (laughs) He's just chosen his his career. Hopefully a producer. I don't know how long editors are for the world. (laughs) But yeah, I, uh, I took him up and I went around for months trying to thank every single person who had even the smallest role in my morning cup of coffee. I chose coffee just because I feel it's sort of a necessity. And I went wide. So I thanked everyone. I thanked the obvious ones like the barista Mm -hmm. and the farmer in Colombia, South America. But there's also the logo designer. There's the person who drove the truck and who paved the road and who painted the yellow lines in the road and who designed the, the ZARF, which I learned is the official name for the the little cardboard sleeve that goes around your coffee. Right, the Zarf. You knew about the Zarf? After reading your book, I did. (laughs) Okay, good. I'm glad I was able to tell you something. So how did you start, and how do people react when somebody that they have no contact with... Well, actually, you you first start with the face-to-face contact with, with the woman at the counter at Joe's Coffee, which my wife and I loved when we lived around the corner from the one in the West Village. That's lovely. Yeah, I tried to do it as many as I could face-to-face. I Mm -hmm. wanted to reach a 1,000. So there was face-to-face, there were phone calls, there was emails, and it was a range of reactions. Some people were were baffled. Some people were suspicious. (laughs) You know, they they were like, what are you selling? Is Is this a pyramid scheme? Right. So not everyone. But I remember, for instance, I called the woman who does pest control for the warehouse where the coffee is served. And I said... I know this sounds strange, but I want to thank you for helping to keep the bugs out of my coffee. And she was like, you know, that is strange, but <laughs> but also thank you. I really appreciate it. And then she said, you know, that would make a great book. <laughs> I said, don't steal it. But she was, uh, you know, she does not get a lot of positive in, uh, feedback. And I think that's that was a lesson that we underestimate the amount of uh, uh, how powerful it is get gratitude. And what did you take away from it? What were the big, the broad strokes? And Well, I took away, I mean, a whole bunch of lessons. Uh, perhaps, perhaps the biggest is just that hundreds of things that go right every day. Mm-hmm. As, and I, my default is to focus on the three or four that go wrong. But just the fact that hundreds, you know, just to fly an airplane, you can't even imagine how much has to go right for that to happen. I mean, that we're recording this podcast and, and we might have some trouble. There's a woman in the next office who might have a meeting and, <laughs> and you might be hearing uh, some uh, coming after in, you. interesting uh, discussions in the background. But just the fact that we're here and doing it and, and it's mostly working, it's just, uh, it's amazing. And it's a radical shift because I think that if I don't consciously remind myself of this, I'm unhappy most of the day. And that is just not a good way to be. So you bring up the relationship between happiness and, and gratitude. Are happy people more grateful or are grateful people more happy? I think uh, it, it's sort of a two-way street. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from this Benedictine monk who said that happiness does not lead to gratitude. Gratitude leads to happiness. So he says he thinks it's all 
the gratitude. And, and I would say, yeah, that's a large part of it. I think they both influence each other. But as we said, you know, you can have everything. You can be a billionaire and still be miserable if you don't appreciate it. Because we all, I think there's the deficit mindset to use a, uh, a financial term. Sure, yeah. You know, you're always looking, uh, I'll be happy when I get X. And then you get X and you'll be, well, I'll, I'll really be happy when I get Y. That's right. It's the hedonic treadmill, as they say. It's like you get so, once you achieve something, it becomes the, the norm so quickly that yep. you have to get something else. But being grateful for the things that are going right every day, my health, my children's health, the, yes, it's a little warm in here, but it's a beautiful day in New York City. Hmm. Recognizing these things lead me to be more appreciative and thus more happy. Yeah. And it's hard though. It is hard because it's, you know, you take them so for granted. Uh, one thing I do, they talk a lot about the research says that writing three things down every mm-hmm. day that you're grateful for and the more specific, the better. I actually don't do that. Instead, I, at night, when I'm falling asleep, I go through the alphabet and I try to take one thing that I'm grateful for for each letter. So like A, it could be uh, that my kids and I made apple pancakes mm-hmm. over the weekend and we had a good time. And B, there's this show on HBO I love called Barry with Henry Winkler. Mm. It's fantastic. Yeah. I'm just grateful that it's such a good show. So, and I'm usually asleep by, you know, the ninth or 10th letter. Right. And so that's the way I do it. But you do it. You have to make it active because it is, it is a practice and a discipline. It's not something that just comes naturally. Speaking of active recognition, the term mindfulness, I find it to be one of the most overused, overly blogged about, yet rarely examined words in our modern language. Mm-hmm. Will you define it? and explain how it's related to gratitude. Yeah, that's a good, I agree. It's all vague. It's very vague. I mean, it it seems to me there can be a couple of different types of mindfulness. One mindfulness is just, just that, being aware of the hundreds of things that go right. That's a good kind of mindfulness. Another uh, type of mindfulness that I do find powerful is uh, metacognition, thinking about what you're thinking about because I don't trust my brain. My brain, <laughs> I think, is an asshole. Your brain has published, what, a half dozen books? Come on, your brain is... is, is well, why wouldn't you trust that brain? Well, because my brain... I will, you know, For every good idea I have, I have about 98 really shitty ideas. Uh-huh. So I, uh, I definitely don't trust my brain. And it'll go to the worst dark places you can imagine if it's not monitored like a baby. Like, so I got to keep a tight leash on it. So that's a, another type of mindfulness that's almost the opposite because it's like you're taking yourself out mm-hmm. instead of being fully present. But I find that very helpful. And um, How do you do that? Well, one thing I do, and it makes me look a little like a crazy person, is I, I talk to myself mm-hmm. uh, because there is some research. <laughs> on the subway? On the subway. I mean, nowadays... With people with cell phones, it doesn't look as crazy as before. So you hold your phone up to your face? Right, but I'm not talking to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) I actually have my my ear. Sir, there's no one on the other side of that phone, (laughs) is there? (laughs) I'm not going to tell anyone. When you talk to yourself, what do you you talk about? Uh, Whatever I'm thinking, because there is some science behind this. You, You know, when you talk, you're using your prefrontal cortex. And if I start to 
uh, spiral into some depression and, and have, you know, these crazy th catastrophic thoughts like, oh, you know, this book is going to ruin my career. Someone's going <laughs> to find a mistake and I'm going to like, or I inadvertently plagiarize. But once I say it out loud, I realize how crazy it is because mm -hmm. it's like you're listening to someone else talk and you're a little more able to judge the craziness. So I am a big fan of of sort of narrating my own life. Oh, that's interesting. You talk a little bit about some tactics that you can practice, and one of them is language-based, and that is the term thank you versus I am grateful. Oh, yeah, that what, was interesting. What's the difference? Well, I would. Uh, this was from a, a Wharton study, so business finance related. Sure. So the result was they had people submit resumes and then uh, do an interview and do a follow-up mm -hmm. thank you note. And apparently the difference in reaction between those who wrote thank you and those who wrote I'm grateful was hugely significant, which mm. is interesting. And the explanation is that thank you is so common, it's just seen as a, a reflex. So if you vary the wording and say something like I'm, I'm grateful or I'm you know, I, I can't thank you enough, that that alone is enough to jolt people out of the, uh, the autopilot. And I will say, I would go further. I would say, you know, the more specific you can be, not just saying I'm grateful, but say I'm grateful. I remember when I wrote, I wrote some of the people who are, are out in the fields uh, helping the farmers, and mm -hmm. I said, you know, I try to get in their mind. It's a, it's an exercise in compassion and try to think what do they go through. And, you know, so I was like, thank you for battling the mosquitoes and the heat. And, you know, I can't imagine how hard it is, but I, I'm really grateful for that. And how did they respond to that? That was positive. Again, the, I think, you know, a mix of a little like that's strange, but I really appreciate it. You go to Columbia with the buyer, with the coffee buyer for Joe's. Is it Joe or Joe's? I can't remember. I think it's Joe. I should know for more. For Joe Coffee. Joe. Joe. Yeah. Joe singular and not possessive. Joe Coffee. And he's negotiating with them on their price per pound or whatever and their contract, et cetera. And it only made me want to drink Joe Coffee more, by the way. But you're there as sort of his sidekick, <laughs> his gratitude sidekick, and you're telling them, thank you, did... Did you worry that they would find your gratitude to be sort of American self-indulgence? Oh, sure. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, there's definitely that danger. They were very, uh, it was a small, a tiny farm owned by eight brothers and one sister in the, the mountains of Colombia. Uh, the scariest part was getting there because I was all driven on these, these roads, these hairpin turns. And every time we went around a turn, the driver would do the sign of the cross. And I was like, you know, he just I wanted to get a base hit. That's all. <laughs> Maybe that's it. He's a former ball player. Uh, but uh, well, we didn't crash. It was, uh, and we got there, and and it was. I I read them a letter because there's some research that actually writing it down and reading it, uh, and told them how it changed my morning every day, and and I will think of them, and they were stoic at first, but then they finally kind of nodded, and 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 they got into it. They started thanking people who help make their jobs possible, like the, the folks who make the machines that depulp the fruit. Coffee beans come inside a little fruit that looks like a grape tomato. 
So in the end, they, they came around. But I do think that that I was very aware of the danger of this being just almost too pat and too. I think there's a fear that of the downside of gratitude is complacency, mm. like, and how there are even some people who think it's like a right wing conspiracy that like. You know, you you tell the Walmart workers to be grateful for their lives so that you can pay them minimum wage. Right. And so they won't complain. Luckily, the research shows the opposite. The research shows that the more grateful you are, the more likely you are to pay it forward, to want to change the world for the better. So let's say your gratitude becomes uh, Beatlemania. It's gratitude mania. And we're all (laughs) out there just thanking the hell out of each other and, and doing it sincerely and properly. What is the, how does the world change? I would say we become much more aware of the chain of all hundreds of people who make our lives possible. So, you know, the fact that there are hundreds of people for every who helped make this table, who helped make this microphone. And I think it would help change. Hopefully uh, it'll inspire us to, fight for their working conditions and make their lives better. I'm not expecting a Nobel Prize, but I did. <laughs> but you'd th- accept one? Would you accept one? I think I would. I would I would play coy like Bob Dylan mm-hmm. and not return their calls. Right. But in the end, I'd be like, all right. Okay. Uh, it's about time. Yeah. But they, I'll give you a, a quick example. Water makes up 98.8% of coffee. So I figured I had to thank the people who provide water to New York City. So I went up and there are hundreds of people, you know, scientists, people who wade out into mm-hmm. the icy water in February to test it. There are park rangers who pick up cow poop so it doesn't go into the, uh, the reservoir. So it's like required. And it made me realize how amazing it is that I can turn this little... Uh, metal tap and get water that's drinkable because this is not true for 99% of human history right. and it's still not true for billions around the world. So I was like, you know what? I, I've got to get off my ass and, and be a little more proactive in, in helping people who don't have this. So I, as I say, not expecting the Nobel, but I, I became involved a little and, and gave money to this this group called uh, Dispensers for Safe Water. Dispensers for Safe Water. I want to come back to that because I want to talk about effective altruism, but there, I, I want to dig into the gratitude of rabbit hole a little uh, bit more I deeply. I love effective altruism. You went down the gratitude rabbit hole, but without thanking a thousand people, what are some ways I can integrate gratitude into my life more effectively? Right. That's a good question. Yeah, because I don't expect everyone to write a book about it, in fact. Because you've already written it. Read, I actually had a book proposal in front of your publisher, <laughs> but damn it, you got there. You sorry. got there first. I am sorry. Maybe there's room for another. You know, you could do it for anything. You could do it for pencils or whatever. But I would say, yeah, the even small gestures are great. When I interviewed the barista and thanked her, first of all, she never did this because she's very sweet. But just so you know, apparently, if you're rude to baristas, they can get back at you by giving you decaf. Oh, so that uh, is the cruelest thing of all. Yeah. So from a purely <laughs> selfish point of view, be nice to your baristas. That's so hilarious. That's sort of the, the revenge. What better way to get back in the addict? Exactly. Deprive them. But she did tell me one of the, uh, 
the, the hardest parts of her job is that people don't even look her in the eye. When they order, they just are looking at their phones and they treat her like a vending machine. So they just like, you know, shove their credit card towards mm-hmm. her and she takes it. So to her, that two seconds of eye contact yeah. is actually makes her day much more palatable. And it's not, you know, two seconds, we can do that. Sure. And, and it's actually not, we are programmed for human interaction. So from a purely selfish point of view, I think you would feel better if you make eye contact with people too. Seeing others and being seen by others right. leads and, to greater satisfaction. And seeing them as a human who like, yes. you know, uh, she, I talked to her about her aching feet and her, you know, her high school memories and, mm-hmm. you know, just trying to remember these people are... In fact, until they're all replaced by AI, so in about 10 years, for the next 10 years, we should actually try to interact. There's an Uber protest going on right now, pre-IPO, and I'm like, folks, you got about 10 years to protest because... There's no more human drivers in a decade. But that's a that's a different topic. That's a, a fascinating t- one, but a different fa- one. Fascinating, fascinating. Do certain cultures do better jobs with gratitude than than our very sensitive culture here in the United States of America? That is a great question that I don't know the answer to. And I will say, this sounds like a rationalization, but one of my favorite new uh, habits is saying I don't know uh, because mm-hmm. I think that in our culture... We are expected to have an opinion on things, even if we have no idea. And I love when people say, you know what? I don't know. Cause, mm. Like, I'm not going to make it up. So I don't know. That's the answer for every coming question. I'm going to say yes, other cultures do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> By like 26.4%. Um, I will say, my, well, I went with my family to uh, Japan, and it was lovely. And I am a huge fan of the bowing that yeah. they do. First of all, it's more hygienic than handshaking. <laughs> uh, but I remember when we we stayed at a hotel and and there was a woman there who like helps you hail cabs. Mm. And as we're pulling away in a cab, she's bowing to us for like a good thirty seconds. And I, you know, it's awkward because I I didn't know how to bow out of the back seat of a cab to bow back at her, but it just made me feel good. Yeah. Maybe this came out of this journey, maybe didn't, but saying I don't know is a new habit of yours. In other ways, has this journey made you a happier person? I do think so uh, in several ways. I, I mean, one is just this idea of savoring, which was big in this journey. And there's literal savoring, which is I interviewed the guy who buys the coffee. He goes around the world to Africa, South America, and tastes all the beans and he's hilarious. Makes the slurping noises. The slurping apparently is very important because mm-hmm. you got to get air into your mouth so yep. it's fully... T- so, yeah, he slurps loud, like comically loudly. <laughs> and then he'll say things like that are almost like a parody of a wine snob. You know, this, I can taste the overripe peach with mm. hints of soil and... Wet, lav- wet dog. Wet, <laughs> I don't know if you ever use that, but... Uh, so... And, you know, I would take a sip and be like, all right, I'm, I'm picking up coffee. There's a lot of <laughs> coffee in this. But, uh, but he did teach me, just leave it on your tongue for five seconds. And even I can taste, start to distinguish between the acidity and the sweetness, mm-hmm. you know, just very basic things. And generalize, taking that idea of savoring and generalizing it has made my, my life better. 
because psychologists talk about savoring is very linked to gratitude mm-hmm. and, and it's basically taking a moment and stretching it out because if we don't do that then your entire life goes by in a blur and sure. you don't appreciate anything so actually taking a moment and sometimes i almost think of i try to make my memory uh, like a museum of where i curate wonderful moments from my life and really make an effort to remember them and if I drink that coffee more slowly and purposefully, that drives more value out of the purchase. I'm getting more utility. Sorry, econ. Love it. Don't mean to brag, but I was an econ <laughs> miner. I'm getting more utility out of that cup of coffee if I'm savoring it. I love that. There you go. That's per- that's the ultra-rational reason for something that's very warm and fuzzy. My wife, she, yes, she calls me her, her little rational one. <laughs> that's, her, that's her pet name for me. I am a big fan. In fact, I once wrote an article about how um, we need more rationality and cost-benefit thinking in romance. Mm. And, uh, like you know, there should be candy hearts and also candy brains. Like mm. the brains, yes. it should say, like, you know, the costs, the benefits of being married to you outweigh the costs, that kind of thing. <laughs> that's so romantic. <laughs> You are a charmer, Thanks. AJ. Yeah, I say that to my wife. <laughs> oh, I'm sure she's just blown away <laughs> when you say that. Uh, you tell a story that I'd like you to share. How did you find your agent? Well, this was a story, yes. I had an idea when I was like very young, recently out of college. I wrote an article about the eerie similarities between uh, Jesus Christ and Elvis Presley. <laughs> And it was basically what they call a charticle now. So it was, mm-hmm. it was, you know, just the same lame joke about 50 times. Like, you know, Elvis, uh, Jesus walked on water, Elvis surfed, that kind of thing over mm-hmm. and over again. Mm-hmm. It definitely did not deserve to be a book, but I was deluded enough to think that it did. And I sent it to about 100 agents. I didn't know anything about agents. I got them. <laughs> And it happened to land on the desk of an Elvis fan at one of the biggest agencies in the world, ICM. And he sent it to a publisher who was an Elvis fan, and it actually got published. And it didn't do, you know, gangbusters, but it did fine. And that's launched my career. But I spoke about it just because of it uh, drives home the importance of luck. Mm. And I think that's very important to remember that my success, I do think that I have some talent. I do think I worked very hard, but so much of my success, whatever there is, is due to luck Mm. because I was, you know, the right place. There are many, many books that came out the same month as mine that were as good or better than mine, but did not sell as well as mine. So acknowledging luck, uh, I think, is important because it helps us be compassionate Mm -hmm. and it helps us be humble and realize, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are are working really hard, who are as talented as Meryl Streep, but just never got the breaks. You bring up an, an interesting point, especially as it comes to success and money. Oh, and by the way, my son's name is Elvis, and our dog's name is Colonel Tom Parker. No way. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Oh, yeah, that's what seven years in Memphis will do. <laughs> but, you know, when you hear a lot of times successful and or wealthy people say, well, I was fortunate, as opposed to I was lucky, in a subtle but very recognizable attempt to sort of take credit for their mm. good for their good fortune or good luck, and I struggle with this sometimes too. I, I there certainly I've the luckiest thing that ever happened to me was being born to parents who wanted me and educated me and saw to it that I would be at least educated and fed. 
Right. That, that's, you know, Warren Buffett calls it the genetic lottery. But I've also worked hard in ways. And so I, I've thought through kind of thinking there, where does the line between good luck and good fortune come? And how do they feed into each other? I once was at a conference with a psychologist who talked about how you make your own luck that like, you know, if you act in certain ways, then you're more likely to, uh, you know, if you, if you go to conferences and meet a wide variety of people, you're more likely to meet someone who's interested. So you can change your luck. I think that's true to an extent, but I also think it's important to realize that luck in our current society plays a huge amount. Uh, and as you say, you have to work hard and you you do have to have some talent at some, but but that's not enough those are necessary but they're not sufficient we talk about money on this podcast a lot and careers you're an editor you're a writer you're an author in a time where you might have a little bit longer shelf life than the uber drivers out there <laughs> but do you stress about the perilous nature of journalism in our our world i mean i am so relieved every time i get a new book deal i'm like (laughs) this could be it this could be it and uh i do think you've got to diversify of course this is not news but you've got to try to get into as many platforms that's why you know podcasting aj i'm gonna do it i don't know i know it may not uh, initially lead to a million dollars but i think it's important and a lot of my writer friends who do make a living still from writing make half or more of their money from speaking. I get in on that too. I love, I don't travel as much because of my kids, but when I do, you know, you work for an hour and a half and you make as much, you know, <laughs> as much as like three months from just sitting in a room writing. Grinding it, it out. It's crazy. All right. What advice do you have for your kids for their careers? And when you're putting them through school, what's in your mind about what you want for them? Well, I guess there are two things. One is uh, my friend Kevin Kelly. I don't know if you know him. He's the founder, one of the founders of Wired. Brilliant guy. But he talks about whatever you learn in school is going to be outdated. So the only thing is (laughs) learning how to learn. Mm. So that's what I try to talk to my kids about. What strategies and tools can they use to learn how to learn? That's one. And then the other is I try to stress how much failure is a part of life. Every day I tell them, I try to tell them something I failed at or something that embarrassed me or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, so I may go overboard that they might think I'm like a complete loser. I do have to remind them of my successes as well. But I just think it's so crucial to building the the all important grit that to remind them how failure is it's going to happen and it's part of being a success is you have to have many failures what do you consider your biggest professional failure well there's i mean one of the most embarrassing heartbreaking moments was my first book that one i was talking about mm-hmm. i sent the it elvis to, book the elvis book mm-hmm. i sent it to an agent and the agent who was interested he sent it out to some publishers and one of the publishers said that they were interested, but they wanted to see a photo of me. And I was (laughs) like, why do you want to see a photo? My agent said, well, they just want to make sure you don't have two heads. Mm -hmm. uh, So you can go on a talk show. So I went to Walmart. I didn't have a photo. This is before cell phone photos. And I took a photo and sent it to him. 
two days later, my agent calls me. He's like, well, they're going to pass. <laughs> and I was like, Man. I'm not good looking enough to be a, uh, an, to be an author. author. <laughs> I thought author, you could be ugly. That was the whole point. So that, you know, that was a humiliation. Coming out of business school, I interviewed with Procter & Gamble. Sorry, not Procter & Gamble, a very large consumer products company in Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> That makes detergent, toothpaste, and mouthwash. And has a satanic symbol. (laughs) So they say. I had three really good on-campus interviews. And they said, hey, we're really interested in having you here. We're going to bring you out to Cincinnati. All you have to do is fill out this personality profile form. And in a cartoonishly quick manner, like, you know, I put the thing in the mail and I close the box and the hand sticks it back out immediately to me. (laughs) They send me a thanks but no thanks letter oh my lord clearly i don't have the the mindset it takes to make it do you know what your personality flaw is that uh doomed you i think it's it's sort of an inability to keep my mouth shut interesting and And i could sense that sort of probably radical um, honesty radical honesty could have been or i didn't prioritize order or militaristic duty or chain of command type stuff as well interesting So anyway, a few years ago, you wrote an article about effective altruism. What is it and how has it changed the way you think about philanthropy? Yeah, that was one of the most fascinating and life-changing articles I've ever written. And and the premise was, if I have $1,000 to give, what is the best way? How can I do the most good possible? Mm -hmm. And, uh, And I stumbled into this group called Effective Altruism, which is, uh, it's linked to the philosopher Peter Singer from mm-hmm. Princeton and mm-hmm. Will McGaskill from Oxford. And I, I like to think of it as money ball, you know, money ball sure. for baseball. Mm-hmm. This is money ball for charity. And it's all about data and seeing how um, making sure that your money is doing as much good as possible. So I also like to think of it if, and this might be a disturbing image, so please mm-hmm. forgive me, but uh, <laughs> if Spock from Star Trek had a baby with Mother Teresa. Oh. This would be effective altruism. So it's like as Ooh. rational as possible, mm-hmm. but also compassionate. And they tend to focus on several areas, which are global health and development. Mm-hmm. So there's there's some uh, like mosquito nets are very effective. You can save a life with just a couple thousand dollars. There's also factory farming Mm -hmm. because if you do buy into the idea the premise that animals can suffer this is one of the biggest sources of suffering on earth right now factory farming factory farming Mm -hmm. because there's billions i i think and i think i read as 90 billion animals right now being factory farmed so far outweighing the number of humans Mm -hmm. so even if they suffer like 10 percent of what humans do then you're still talking amazing amount of suffering. Right. Uh, and then far future threats like um, pandemics and, and the climate. So it's all about trying to think as rationally as possible. How can we do good? So you have X dollars to contribute. How do you rationally determine how that should be used? Right. And and I will say, you know, there is some controversy because it's there are some wonderful meaning charities like... Make-A-Wish Foundation, you know, how do you argue against Make-A-Wish Foundation? Well, I'm about to do it. (laughs) (laughs) But say that that costs $6,000 to bring some kid to Disneyland. I mean, 
that's that's lovely, but that same amount of money could save, and I'm making this up, but uh, somewhere around 50 kids from blindness in Ecuador. Mm. So uh, how do you weigh that? And, you know, uh, from a rational point of view, you, it does seem that Make-A-Wish is not the best use of your money. So effective altruism means how much you give and how you give. We've talked about how you give. How do you process how much you should give? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, you could make an argument that if you are not giving 90% of your money, you're a horrible person because you're basically letting kids drown. It's the equivalent just because they are in a faraway country doesn't mean that we shouldn't help them. But that's a very debilitating way to look at life. Like, you can't go through life like that. So every time I fill up my gas tank, every time I buy a large instead of a medium, I'm essentially foregoing the opportunity to save a life. Yeah, you have blood on your hands. Yes. Which is a terrible, because I do think guilt is a debilitating emotion. So instead, I, t- I try to think of it in terms of responsibility mm-hmm. and empowerment even. Right. Because the idea is everyone can be Oscar Schindler. Like, you can run into a burning building and save babies just by cutting a check. So it is really an empowering feeling as opposed... And so it all, uh, you know, I'm I'm not going to give 90%, but I didn't take a pledge to give uh, at least 10% of my income. Mm -hmm. And hopefully if, you know, I continue to make money and enough that I don't that I have extra, I'll hopefully bump that up to 20%. Hear that publishers and speakers, (laughs) speakers, bureaus. That's right. Give me lots of money because it'll go to a good cause. I mean, there are people in the effective altruism movement who give 50% or or more. And uh, I'm not as good as them, but I admire them. So maybe you can offer some counseling to the couples who are out there listening to this where one is interested in puppies and the other one is interested in a more rational approach to doing the most good they can do with their dollars. <laughs> not saying I know any couples like this. I'm just suggesting that maybe they're out well, there. Well, I do love puppies. I would say I, there's also, you've got to do it in moderation. Like, cause I asked Will uh, McGaskill about it. You know, when I get an email from friends saying, will you buy my daughter's Girl Scout cookies? Uh, the rational response would be, well, is your daughter's Girl Scout a company in, uh, in Sierra Leone and uh, are they lacking clean water? Because if <laughs> yeah. not, I don't want to buy it. But that's just a horrible way to go through life. So there is social lubricant. There is, mm-hmm. a, there is an advantage to being a human and self-care and being happy because if you're not happy, you can't help others. You know, as, right. as we talked about earlier, like, at least anecdotally, when I am miserable and depressed, which happens, you know, I, mm-hmm. I definitely go up and down. I'm not interested in helping others. I'm all about like, how can I get out of this? Yeah. My, um, yeah. So, so anyway. Plus you get the cookies. Plus you get the cookies. You're going to buy delicious. cookies anyway. The Samoan. Samoans are good. So yeah, don't go crazy. But I would say one piece of advice, since this is a money show, this is actually very money oriented. You know, the phrase, um, Penny wise, pound foolish. Yes. So basically like you scrimp and save on, uh, on buying deter- the cheapest detergent, but then you go out and buy a sports car. So right. the, the advice from effective altruism is to be um, penny foolish and pound wise. Mm. So, you know, buy your Frappuccino every day because it gives you so much pleasure. 
But then when it comes to buying, you know, I don't need a car. I live in New York. I'm not going to buy a car. I don't have any watches. I don't, much to my wife's chagrin, I, I dress like crap. So <laughs> maybe. I don't know. That t-shirt's pretty styling, man. <laughs> Thank you. Pretty much, pretty sure it's Gap. Maybe Banana Republic if I went fancy. So anyway, that, that, that's just a, a goal and something to think about. I don't know if I achieve it, but something. When you write these books about your mini journeys, do people think you're crazy? <laughs> I would say, yeah, you know, some, uh, crazy is a nice word, you know, for some people think I'm an idiot, an asshole, but uh, that's all right. Uh, there's enough people out there right now, knock on wood, who enjoy what I'm doing that I can still make a living and I love it. So, so that's okay. I mean, I will say, uh, my heart goes out to my wife because these, <laughs> these do put a strain on the marriage sometimes because, you know, conflict is interesting. So I have to create some conflict in my books or else it's going to be boring. So for instance, when I followed all the rules of the old Testament for a year, yes. to see, uh, the, I did the 10 commandments and, uh, and no lying or gossiping, which is hard enough. But then there are rules like Leviticus. It says you cannot touch a woman during her menstrual period. And if you take it literally, you cannot sit in a seat where a menstruating woman has sat because then the seat is impure. <laughs> so my wife, she found that offensive and sat in every seat in our apartment. <laughs> so I had to stand for the year, which I found out later when I did a book on health, standing is better for you than sitting. So uh, in a sense. But only for four days a month. Right? <laughs> that. No, no, because once the seat, it doesn't say in the Bible, then it becomes pure again. Oh, once it's been, oh my god! So to be safe, like once once it's been sat in by a menstruating woman, that's it. Oh my God. Your yeah. wife really is. She does deserve, <laughs> she does deserve lots and lots of credit. What advice would you give to someone who's looking to um, get into the arts these days? I would say... In some ways, it is the most exciting time in arts, and in other ways, it's the most terrifying. Because it's exciting because of the just the availability of outlets yes. and, and also the different ways that you can be creative with uh, and mixing and matching video and audio and text. Like, that's never been better. Financially, it's a terrifying time. Yes. So, uh, you know. There's the whole stick with your day job, maybe. Right. Uh, oh, and, wait, well, I forgot to do that. <laughs> well, luckily, your day job, uh, you stuck with it long enough. I think so, yeah. That you don't have to worry now. You made a good choice. So, so yeah, I would say, you know, I, I'm all about slashes, trying to be as many different types of uh, art as possible. And, and so far, for the last few years, I don't... I haven't had to have a, a day job, but uh, who knows? You know, I'm not count. I'm not. I'm not saying that's out of the question. Does that create stress for you? Yeah, as I say, you know, I'm every time I get a book deal, I'm like, thank God, yeah. I, I I can do this for another couple of years. But again, I try not to fall into the default negative mode and be worried, and instead try to focus on the amazing fact that, you know, I was I was born in a time where I was able to be a professional writer for mm -hmm. at least, uh, you know, whatever it's been now, 25 years. So who every other year, let's hope it's going to be another 10 or 20. Yeah. Cool. 
All right, AJ, where can people find out more about you? The usual places, Twitter, AJ Jacobs, and uh, my website, ajjacobs.com. And listening to this show, which, by the way, very grateful for your show. Uh, I have loved it because I do think this is an area, sort of the emotions and personal stories about money, that really is underserved. And I've really been enjoying listening to back episodes. Well, thanks a bunch. We, uh, we're enjoying doing it, and uh, I am grateful for your time. My pleasure. That's Mr. A.J. Jacobs, a man who is doing his best to spread gratitude to all and spend his time on this earth doing and thinking about interesting things. You know what, folks? I'm grateful to A.J. for his time. I'm grateful to you for listening. I'd also be really grateful if you would take a minute to share this podcast with somebody you think would enjoy it. If you have a minute, maybe give us a rating on that there podcast app that you're listening to us on. Write a quick review saying as nice things as you can honestly say. As we close out this week's episode, I'm going to leave you with a list of things I'm grateful for. I did this on my 50th birthday on my Facebook page. I made a list of 50 things I'm grateful for. These are different, but I'm reposting that list on my LinkedIn page. You can check it out on LinkedIn at Paul Ollinger, O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. And so for today, I'll leave saying I'm grateful to you for listening. I'm grateful to AJ for his time. I am grateful to Mike Carano for editing this interview and inspiring me to do this podcast in the first damn place. I am grateful to my <laughs> I am grateful to my wife for taking care of the kids while I came to New York this week. I am grateful for the pilot who flew me in the plane and for the flight attendants who plied me with club soda and peanuts and for the baggage handlers who handled other people's bags mine were carrying on and for the TSA agents who cleared me through despite the anomalous groin that they said I had their words. That's what they said. I am grateful to the person who invented the microphone. I am grateful to the people who make the Zoom recorder and Lexar SD chip on which this program was recorded. I am grateful for Mr. Sheraton, to Mr. Sheraton, for building this hotel on Canal Street with his own hands and for starting the loyalty program that allows me to stay here at zero out-of-pocket costs because I'm very conscious of costs and I don't want to be spend more than a fade-out, fade-out, fade-out.